Hello and welcome. This is the September 2019 podcast of the American Journal of Public Health. I will review today what happened in public health over the last 12 months as reflected in the columns of the journal and in its monthly podcast. I will replay some snippets of old podcasts along with music that was specially composed for each of them by Francis Jacob. I will conclude with statistics about the journal's performance last year. I am Alfredo Morabia, Editor-in-Chief of AJPH. We are August 4, 2019. Preparing and responding to natural and man-made disasters has become the new public health normal. One of the pending natural disasters would be a devastating flu pandemic. The great influenza pandemic of 1918 was by far the worst pandemic in the 20th century. A pandemic of similar magnitude today would kill 80 million people. In the November 2018 podcast, I interviewed Barbara Jester, who is a Battelle contractor working for the Influenza Division at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta. She surprised us, offering an optimistic perspective were we to encounter such a deadly virus today. But so, Barbara, what, what you're telling me is compared to 100 years ago, a hundred years ago, we didn't know what was coming. Now we know what's coming, but we're just as doomed. Oh, no, no, no. We are definitely not not just as doomed because we have medications now to treat it. Uh, even before the vaccine is ready, someone who has influenza, there's antiviral medications now. And uh, again, those can lessen the duration of your symptoms. And if you have uh, develop a secondary bacterial infection, we now have antibiotics, a plethora of categories of antibiotics. And in 1918, that was even before penicillin. And right. uh, the, yeah, and that was most of the deaths in the 1918 were from secondary bacterial infections. And even right. now, if you, yeah, if you got critically ill from influenza, nowadays we have, you know, critical care and we have ventilator support. So we are much, much better off. Okay. So, so let's say we knew it was influenza. Influenza is in the United States. I have the first symptoms. Where do I get this antibiotic? Uh, at your at your physician again, you can go uh, to your regular healthcare provider, and right in his office, he can test you for influenza. Uh, I just you know, did. I just did, and there were a line going three blocks around his house. I mean, impossible <laughs> to reach him. Okay. So what well, in I that do? case, well, now we're going to start talking about some of the the new strategies that are being developed. Um, CDC has been exercising a strategy called nurse on call, which would, a uh, flu on call, which is a nurse triage line. So there could be that you could just call into a phone number and have a nurse assess your symptoms over the phone and in conjunction with a pharmacy, get you that antiviral prescription. Yeah, that's great. And if I need to go to the hospital... If you need to go to the hospital, you, you know, you're you know, hold. in 1918, <laughs> people people were dying very fast from that influenza. So, 
if you need to get more than the antibiotic. And let me go straight to my question. People say hospitals today are not prepared to receive that many people that would, you know, flock towards them in case of pandemic. So, And I would have to agree. Uh, just based on last season, we had a severe influenza season. And if you look at some of the headlines, hospitals swamped. That was definitely the case. And hospitals need to keep working on their pandemic plan, and they need to figure out how they are going to surge their staffing and how they're going to triage their care and provide care to a, a lot more people, especially if it's in a situation where many of their own staff might be sick or, or caring for someone sick. Over the last three years, AJPH has been giving a renewed attention to the health of workers. One indicator is the reduction in life expectancy of the U.S. white working class, also referred to as the epidemic of deaths of despair. In the January 2019 podcast dedicated to the opioids epidemic, Mark Rothstein, associate editor of AJPH, stressed that the increased consumption of opioids was closely connected to the epidemic of despair. One of the things that we all realize is that in, in many respects, the opioid crisis is, you know, the symptom of a larger, more complex problem, and, and that has sometimes been referred to as the problem of despair in certain communities. And in certain rural areas and in Appalachia, which I'm familiar with here in Kentucky, um, The social conditions really give rise to this kind of um, systematic problem throughout their society. It's no coincidence that the lowest income states in the country have the highest percentage of opioid use disorder. And um, on the other hand, the, the um, highest income states have the lowest percentage of opioid use disorder. So, you know, it's to get a, a, a long-range handle on this, we need to address, you know, poverty and education and environmental degradation and all sorts of other problems. facet of the workers' health is the expansion of jobs in the healthcare, fast food, and warehouse-based shipping industry. These economic sectors employ women and minority workers at wages that are below the poverty line. In February 2019, the dossier was about the health of healthcare workers, the numbers of workers and their children who do not have the means to pay for their own health insurance and must live in poverty are astonishing. 
I interviewed Katie Himmelstein, the first author of the study on the minimum wage of $15 in the healthcare sector. She was then a medical student in Pennsylvania. Let's look at numbers. Uh, what's the prevalence, you know, the, what's the fraction of uh, female healthcare worker who have a, a wage below $15 per hour? Yeah, so this statistic was very striking to me when, when we found this in the data that nearly 35% of all women working in healthcare are currently earning less than $15 an hour. And then when we look specifically at black and Latina women, nearly 50%, uh, just under 50% of black and Latina women working in healthcare are learning, earning less than $15 an hour. 5% of all women healthcare workers uh, are living below the federal poverty line and 8.8% of Latina women and 10.6% of black women working in healthcare are going home to households that are living under the federal poverty line. Um, so that overall is 1.7 million women healthcare workers and their children. And, and those folks comprise 5% of all people living in poverty in the United States. I also interviewed Henry Treadwell, who is with Community Voices and the Department of Community Health and Preventive Medicine at the Morehouse School of Medicine in Atlanta. She stressed the geographical distributions of these underpaid workers. Do you see any difference across... Uh U.S. states in terms of gender and racial wage inequities? Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina, Tennessee, and for some reason Wyoming is in here. But the thing that is clear about the first six or seven is that they are in southern states where there is a history of not expanding Medicaid, of not raising the minimum wage, of not taking actions that would support the large numbers of people of color who live here. Historically, we noted that most of the minorities were African American, but these are also agricultural states. And so there's a large influx of Hispanic and Latinas into the community. Another dimension of the workers' health in the United States was the theme of our May 2019 dossier. A major crisis occurring in the governmental public health workforce in state and local health departments. According to the latest Public Health Workforce Interest and Needs Survey, or PHWINS, a massive wave of retirement will slash a third of the workforce. Here is the diagnostic of Jonathan P. Leider, 
who is with the Division of Health Policy and Management at the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. Here we are to talk about uh, the result of the survey uh, PH wins. And uh, something that struck me is that uh, we are heading towards a, a wave of retirement, right? Yes, absolutely. The, the silver tsunami, they call it. And so what would this imply? I mean, what, what's the magnitude, first of all, of this uh, retirement? Uh, 10, 20, 30 percent? What, what, what is the magnitude? Sure. Well, I, I think it's important to place this in historical context. So even before the Great Recession, what little surveillance data we had on the workforce said we had an aging workforce, right? That we had a relatively high number of staff who were ready to retire at any moment. Um, but then the recession hits, public health at the state and local level loses something like 50,000 jobs. But we also didn't see as many retirements as we expected because so many folks had had this bad financial situation happen to them as well. And so they decide to delay retirement. So we've known for a while that the workforce is aging. We know that people are delaying retirement, but not until recently did we kind of nail that down and we found um, through PH wins, we, we had almost 50,000 responses to it in 2017. So of, of those folks, we found 22% are planning to retire by 2023, and 41% are planning to retire or are thinking about leaving their organization in the next year. So we've got this combination of uh, general demographic trends in the U.S., right? We've got baby boomers retiring, all these delayed retirements finally happening, and then people looking for greener pastures as well. Public health, please tell me why, when I need you, you're so shy, you're my hope, my life supply. Altogether, these dossiers highlight zones of acute need for public health intervention. But HAPH has also been reporting examples of all the actions that are taking place and are evidence that public health is thriving. Here are two examples. The first is the mass prevention of obesity that occurred in Oklahoma City, which is one of the several blooming cities of interior states. My interviewee was Mick Cornett, who served four terms as Republican mayor of Oklahoma City from 2004 to 2018. Mick Cornett is credited for having transformed Oklahoma City from one of the fattest cities in the United States to one of the fittest cities. And this is based on the same metrics used by the magazine Men's Health for its ranking. I was intrigued by his decision to fight obesity, not by targeting the people with obesity, but by putting, as he coined it, the whole city on a diet. And I just think if you're really serious about dealing with obesity, you've got to admit that it's, it's about what you eat and it's about how much you eat. And the message about exercise should be universal to everyone in your community, not just people that are obese. And I, I never backed off of that, that premise that people who are obese are not going to exercise their way out of it. They're going to have to adjust what they eat and how much they eat. 
But you see, mate, this is really fantastic because this idea of everybody must lose weight and not only the fattest. This is one of the, the main theory today in, in public health and in epidemiology. It's called mass prevention. Did you come out with this idea uh, on your own or, or did you read about it? How, how did you get it? No, it, it's on my own, but I, you know, I've, I've had a, an entire life spent battling obesity as a, as a child, as an adult. And so I had a lot of experience with, uh, you know, weight gain and weight loss and through the years. And uh, as mayor, and especially when I realized that, the, you know, our city was obese and I had allowed myself to become an example of that, I knew I could take care of my personal issues and I lost weight. But I realized that the built environment in Oklahoma City and most Western cities had been built around the automobile and a very sedentary lifestyle, and that we really needed to address that, that the city had a responsibility for a healthier built environment. And so we have built a much more pedestrian-friendly community uh, full of sidewalks and jogging and biking paths and more narrow streets downtown. And I think that's part of it, too. And, and of course, you see bike lanes and, and, a, and a lot of additional infrastructure changes coming. But uh, you know, here we are 10 years after that initial awareness campaign, and our county health department reports that our statistics are all heading in the right direction. So, Mick, which statistics are going in the right direction? Areas like obesity, cancer, heart disease, strokes, um, you know, some very critical metrics that they, they track are all heading in a better direction than they were. And you sense when you're in Oklahoma City that, that we are cognizant that we're trying to be a healthier community. And I think a mayor and, and leaders do have an opportunity to kind of set a tone. The Durham Neighborhood Compass provides an example of community health empowerment. Another interviewee of the April podcast was Ebony Bullware, who is Professor-in-Chief of the Division of General Internal Medicine and also Director of the Clinical and Translational Science Award at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. What's the objective? Compass to go where, I would say? The objective is to improve health of the community, um, and that is by ha having community stakeholders all get engaged in health. The idea behind the compass is really to improve health by understanding where um, people are coming, what people are coming into the healthcare system for, so that we can begin to prevent some of those conditions or help uh, mitigate them through um, healthy strategies outside of the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. Can you give me an example of what such a strategy would be or has been or very um, practical? Early, yeah, the, one of the earliest examples rose out of an early pilot of this called the Southeastern Diabetes Initiative, where we mapped out, um, the health systems mapped out where the highest rates of diabetes prevalence were in the Durham County community. And then there were a series of tiered interventions to help treat and prevent diabetes across the community. Number one, there was a community advisory stakeholder board that was able to look at these data, see maps of diabetes prevalence, um, and then begin to think about what are the strategies we can use to improve diabetes um, rates. So they ranged from 
very intensive interventions where people were going into the homes of, of people in the community, into those neighborhoods and into their homes to help do self-management where nurses would reach out to or community health workers, all the way to um, broader community level interventions to teach about healthy diet, um, including gardening interventions, um, raise, raise bed gardens to help people think about growing their own food and um, creating healthy diet environments for themselves. So um, that was one of the, the initial pilots um, in taking that health system data and then developing targeted place-based interventions to improve health. Of course, there was much more in the journal. We had a dossier on the role of faith-based organizations in public health. We celebrated the 50th anniversary of Stonewall in New York City and of the book Our Bodies Ourselves. But let me end with some statistics. In June 2019, Clarivate produced its annual quantitative assessment of the activity of scientific journals. The most important information for AJPH was that our articles were cited 40,000 times in 2018. 40000. Our most discussed paper, entitled Weaponized Health Communication, was published in October 2018 by Broniatowski and colleagues, who found that the objective of tweets and media posts about vaccines produced by Russian trolls and bots was strictly to generate confusion at an industrial scale. This was the 37th most discussed paper ever out of almost 12 million papers tracked by Altmetrics. It is also the fifth most discussed paper of 274,000 published papers in October 2018. In terms of podcasts, there were more than 14,000 listening in 2018, up from 3,500 a year before, and this is based on podcast app statistics. This year, 2019, AJPH podcasts have been listened to already more than 17,000 times. The audience for our accompanying podcast in Chinese has substantially increased to, to about 500 listenings per month. Our total audience is likely to be much larger, although we haven't found a way yet to include listenings directly from the AJPH website. That's it. See you next month for a podcast about racism and health disparities 400 years after the arrival of the first African slaves in Jamestown in 1619. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.